Don't ever stop learning something new. This is Clinical Pearls. In our immediate past episode, we covered the FIGO revised staging for ovarian cancer, which now includes malignancies of the fallopian tube and the peritoneum. In this episode, we will wrap up the discussion of this new OVFTP designation by focusing on the treatment and management of ovarian fallopian tube peritoneal malignancy. Because of similar pathophysiology of ovarian, fallopian tube, and peritoneal malignancies, treatment is the same for this tripronged disease process. In general, the prognosis of epithelial ovarian, fallopian, and peritoneal malignancies is independently affected by the following factors. The stage of the cancer at diagnosis, the histological type of malignancy and its grade, and the maximum diameter of residual disease after cytoreductive surgery. A thorough staging laparotomy is an important part of early management. If the pre-op suspicion is malignancy, then a laparotomy should be performed versus laparoscopy. Upon opening the abdominal pelvic cavity, the peritoneal fluid should be sent for cytology. In the absence of ascites, then pelvic irrigation should be performed and those washings should be sent to cytology. The laparotomy should proceed with a detailed examination of the contents, including all of the peritoneal surfaces. In addition to the suspicious sites, biopsies from the peritoneal reflection of the bladder, the posterior cul-de-sac, both paracolic gutters, the subdiaphragmatic surface, and both pelvic sidewalls should be taken. The primary tumor, if limited to the ovary, should be examined to look for capsule rupture. All obvious sites of tumor must be removed whenever possible in addition to total hysterectomy along with bilateral sapingo-oophrectomy. The omentum, pelvic, and paraaortic lymph nodes should also be removed for histological examination. In younger women, fertility may be an issue. In these patients, conservative surgery with preservation of the uterus and the contralateral ovary should be considered after informed consent. At least two-thirds of patients with ovarian cancer present with stage 3 or 4 disease. This may affect the performance status and fitness for surgery. However, and here's a clinical pearl, the most important prognostic indicator in patients with advanced stage ovarian cancer is the volume of residual disease after surgical debulking. So, patients whose medical condition permits should generally undergo a primary laparotomy with total abdominal hysterectomy, bilateral sampingo-oophrectomy, the omentectomy, and maximal attempt at optimal reduction. This may necessitate bowel resection and occasionally partial or complete resection of other organs. Systematic pelvic and paraortic lymphadenectomy of non-enlarged nodes does not seem to improve overall survival when compared with removal of bulky nodes only, although there does seem to be modest improvement in progression-free survival. Now that we've laid down that framework, let's come back and talk about chemotherapy options in the next section. 
let's cover chemotherapy for early-stage cancer first. The prognosis of patients with adequately staged tumors with stage 1A and stage 1B grade 1 to 2 epithelial cancers is very good, and adjuvant chemo does not provide additional benefit and is not indicated. But for higher grade tumors and for patients with stage 1C disease, adjuvant platinum-based chemo is given to most patients, although there's been debate about the absolute survival benefit in women with stage 1A and 1B cancers who have already been thoroughly surgically staged. All patients with stage 2 disease should receive adjuvant chemo. The optimal number of cycles in patients with stage 1 disease has not been definitively established, but typically is between 3 and 6 cycles. What about chemo for advanced stage ovarian cancer? Patients who have primary sideroreductive surgery should have follow-up chemotherapy after surgery. The standard cycles are six, and these are platinum-based combination chemo. This uses a platinum-based regimen like carboplatin or cisplatin and a taxane like paclitaxel or docetaxel. Now, docetaxel is an option in patients who have had a significant allergic reaction to paclitaxel or who develop early sensory neuropathy because docetaxel is less neurotoxic but more myelosuppressive than paclitaxel. A quick word about peritoneal chemo. Although intraperitoneal chemo has been shown to be associated with improved progression-free survival and overall survival in selected patients who have been optimally debulked and are stage 3, it is not widely used outside of the USA, and this is because of concerns regarding increased toxicity and catheter-related problems, and the benefits are actually still debated. Nonetheless, combination chemo with either intravenous carboplatin and paclitaxel or intraperitoneal cisplatin and paclitaxel are the standard treatment options for patients with advanced disease with evidence to support the addition of bevacizumab in selected patients. Next, let's talk about PARB inhibitors and their role in ovarian fallopian tube peritoneal malignancies. PARP inhibitors are a group of pharmacological inhibitors of the enzyme poly-ADP ribose polymerase. They've been developed for multiple indications, but the most important is the treatment of malignancy. Several forms of cancer are more dependent on PARP than regular cells, making PARP an attractive target for cancer therapy. There is good evidence to support the role of PARP inhibitors as maintenance therapy following response to chemo in patients with platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer, as well as monotherapy in selected patients with recurrent ovarian malignancy. Patients with BRCA mutations, both germline and somatic, seem to have the greatest benefit, but a subset of patients with tumors with homologous recombination deficiency also derive benefit with treatment with PARP inhibitors. All right, as we wrap up this podcast, let's say a quick word about second-look laparotomy. 
A second look laparotomy or laparoscopy was previously performed in patients who had no clinical evidence of disease after completion of first-line chemo to determine response to treatment. Now, although this may have been of prognostic value, it has not been shown to influence survival and is no longer recommended as part of the standard of care. But what about secondary saddle reduction? Secondary saddle reduction may be defined as an attempt at saddle reductive surgery at some stage following completion of first-line chemo. Retrospective studies suggest that patients benefit if all macroscopic disease can be removed, which usually means patients with a solitary or a localized recurrence. Patients with a disease-free interval longer than 12 to 24 months and those with only one to two sites of disease appear to derive most benefit. The role of secondary reductive surgery is still being evaluated in certain randomized clinical trials. Regarding the follow-up of malignant epithelial tumors, there's no evidence to show that intensive clinical monitoring during follow-up after completion of primary surgery and chemo with early initiation of chemo in asymptomatic women with recurrent disease actually improves overall survival or their quality of life. In asymptomatic patients with CA125 progression and small volume disease or no radiological evidence of recurrence, it is actually appropriate, according to FIGO, to delay starting chemo. There are no evidence-based guidelines regarding the appropriate follow-up schedule. During the first year following treatment, patients are seen every three months with a gradual increase in intervals to every four to six months after two years and then annually after the fifth year. At each follow-up, the patient should have her history taken, including any change in family history of cancers and attention to any symptoms that could suggest a recurrence. A physical and pelvic exam should also be performed. This is an opportunity to refer appropriate patients for genetic testing if it was not done at diagnosis or during treatment. The CA-125 has traditionally been checked at regular intervals, but there's been debate regarding the clinical benefit of using CA-125 progression alone as a trigger point for initiating second-line chemo. There appears to be no benefit to initiating chemo in an asymptomatic patient with recurrent disease based only on rising CA-125 levels in the absence of clinical symptoms or radiological evidence of recurrence. In asymptomatic patients with small volume disease and no radiological evidence of recurrence, close observation is a reasonable option as well as entry into an appropriate clinical trial or possibly a trial of tamoxifen, which may be considered. Imaging tests like ultrasound of the pelvis, CT, MRI, or positron emission tomography should be performed only when the clinical findings or the tumor markers suggest high possible rate of recurrence. All right, podcast family, we're at the end of our podcast, but we have to clarify this whole issue of tamoxifen in these possible recurring cases. A Cochrane database systematic review of tamoxifen in unselected women with recurrent ovarian cancer reported a 10% objective response rate and a 32% disease stabilization rate. 
According to recent data out of GOG clinical trials, there is evidence that suggests that tamoxifen may have a role in selected patients with a rising CA125 level and the relationship between estrogen receptor positivity and benefit of tamoxifen in this select patient population is still being further evaluated in current clinical studies. All right, we've just wrapped up the treatment of ovarian malignancies, which is the same for fallopian tube and peritoneal malignancy. Thanks for being a part of Clinical Pearls. We'll see you next time on our podcast.